a lot and played, but every time I'm away from you, I'm reminded again, and it doesn't take much to remind me of this, of how much I love you, how grateful I am to be a part of this church, uh, how proud I am to be your pastor, and how much I believe in God the Holy Spirit in us to make disciples for Christ from people of the South Shore and beyond. I'm so glad to be in this work with you, and uh, grateful for Pastor Mike and Steve, uh, who did a great job wrapping up John's epistles for us, and very excited that today we begin on a new journey in the book of Genesis. If you've got your Bible with you today, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, and I want to encourage you to use that as well if you don't have one with you. Um, but we're going to start a new study in the book of Genesis and for the next few months, we're going to focus specifically on Genesis chapters 1 through 11. There's a natural division between chapters 11 and 12, and so it, it's, uh, it's not a bad practice at all. It makes a lot of sense to tackle them in different sections. And so uh, through the summer months up until about school starts, uh, we're going to be in Genesis 1 through 11. And so this morning, I want to give you a really robust introduction to the book of Genesis. And then we're going to do a deep dive into the beautiful opening lines of the Bible in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, in this introductory material, if you picked up our study guide last Sunday, uh, some of this you found in there, and so it may seem familiar. And just in case you did not pick up the study guide, well, we want to make sure we cover all of this together so that we're on the same page. And so let's answer a few questions as a way of introducing ourselves to the book of Genesis. First of all, why would we study the book of Genesis? specifically chapters 1 through 11. Of all the things we could study, of all the places we could put our attention and time, of all the felt needs we have that we need the Bible to answer, why Genesis? Here's a few reasons. First of all, Genesis is foundational to understanding the rest of the Bible. If I'm going to make sense of who I am in my relationship to God, who I am in my sin, who God is as a Redeemer, who Jesus is as God the Son, who took on flesh and died in my place. If I'm going to make sense of Christmas and Easter and the end of all things, I've got to know the book of Genesis. All the major biblical themes that carry us all the way through to the end of the New Testament, we find born in the book of Genesis. And so understanding Genesis is vital to understanding the rest of the Bible. Second reason for studying this is because Genesis has a lot to say about current cultural issues. And we're going to touch on these in the coming months. Genesis is not just some vague historical work. It speaks to human needs that have been present since the beginning of humanity. It's incredibly contemporary and relevant to our current social scene. A third reason for studying Genesis is because studying Genesis is going to increase our confidence in God's Word. Hey, let's be honest. Chapters 1 through 11 have some weird stuff in it. If you're familiar at all with it, you know there's some strange things that go on. And how do we normally relate to some of this weird stuff in the Bible? We might shy away from it. We might pretend like it's not there. We might just live in Paul's letters instead of going back to Genesis. But we don't have anything to be afraid of. We don't have any excuses to make for the Bible. We don't have to explain anything away. And listen, a global literal flood is the least 
of the strange things in chapters 1 through 11. And so we're going to take these uh, with confidence, and we're going to study what God's Word says, and it's going to increase our confidence in God's Word. We don't have anything to be ashamed of or any excuses to make for any part of the Bible. The fourth reason to study Genesis is because even in Genesis, especially in Genesis, we meet the gracious, redeeming character of God. So many times people have this impression that the God of the Old Testament is an angry God, but the God of the New Testament, he's the, he's the good God. He's nice and gentle and loving. We'll see even from the opening lines this morning that God's, God's character is consistent start to finish. Yes, he is serious about sin. Yes, he is serious about his holiness. And yes, he is a God abounding in compassion and love for his people. Let me give you one fifth reason, a quick one from a conversation we had this past week um, for why we should study Genesis. Talking with Pastor Mike, he made a great point that Genesis also is essential, especially these days, when it comes to sharing the gospel with people. If you think about a conversation you might have with a friend who doesn't know Jesus, you might think, well, we're going to start that conversation at the cross. But anymore, the, the people that we live around don't possess the foundational knowledge or the definitions to be able to start at the cross with a discussion about who Jesus is. In fact, what you might find is that those discussions have to start in the book of Genesis. Just to go and establish the fact there is one God. Uh, he is knowable. He is sovereign. He's beautiful. He's redeeming. And we are sinful. All those things that lay the foundation to share the gospel with a friend start in the book of Genesis. And so I think you study Genesis well. It's going to improve uh, and increase your confidence when it comes to sharing the gospel with the people around you. So those are some reasons, not all the reasons, but those are some of the reasons why it's beneficial for us to study Genesis 1 through 11. Now, let me give you a, just a quick insight into what to expect over the next uh, few months and what not to expect. I just want us to be clear about what this series is and is not. So first of all, we're going to focus every Sunday on the story in front of us, the character of God and His grace to sinners. Those themes will show up repeatedly throughout Genesis 1 through 11. And we never want to lose sight of the narrative that we're in. There's an overarching narrative from chapter 1 to 11, but we'll be taking that narrative bit by bit. We never want to stray from that. We want to stay focused in on the passage in front of us. What we're not going to do is we're not going to dive into the minutia of creation theories and apologetics. Now, there are some things we have to believe about creation. Creation is not a DIY doctrine. There are things the Bible gives us about what creation is, how it happens, who's responsible for it. So there are things that in order for us to be biblically orthodox, we have to know and believe. We're going to hit on those. And we're going to talk about these things. Um, but there is a way of approaching Genesis that is more about apologetics or defending the faith or defending certain views of creation. There are other resources available that are going to do that for you. And if that's an itch that you have, you're probably already reading those materials or listening to those speakers. I encourage you to continue to do that. Just don't get upset when that's not where we land as we walk through this series. Okay? Uh, third question, very important. Who wrote the book of Genesis? Here's our answer. The book of Genesis was written by Moses and company. I'll explain the company here in just a second. So how do we know that Moses wrote the book of Genesis? Well, Moses' authorship of not just Genesis but the first five books of the Bible is attested both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
Throughout the Bible, when people speak of the books of the law, they're referring to the book of Moses, these first five books that he gets credit for being the author of. In fact, Jesus himself confirms that Moses is the author of these first five books of the Bible in John chapter 5. Now, to be sure, Moses wrote the the bulk of the book of Genesis, well, the first five books of the Bible, but he didn't write all of it. And here's how we know he didn't write all of the first five books of the Bible, because at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, the author speaks of the death of Moses. And, and unless Moses wrote that in advance of his death and described in perfect detail the things that happened after he died, well, then that means someone else took up the pen after his death and finished the book of Deuteronomy for him. Now, if you do some study, you'll find scholars who will propose multiple, multiple authors for the first five books of the Bible. Uh, A common theory labels at least five different authors who contribute to this. And the more liberal the scholarship goes, the more authors get added to that list. And here's my take on that. I'm not anti-scholarship, not by any stretch of the imagination. But if Jesus says Moses wrote this, I'm going with Jesus on this one. I think we're going to have great confidence that Moses is the one who wrote this, and he wrote it in a very specific historical setting. So when did Moses write this book? Well, he wrote it, we think, in the last 15th century B.C., or the late 15th century B.C., at the time following the Exodus, when Israel had left slavery in Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness, We think it's in that wandering period that Moses sat down and he began to record these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I think so many times when we read Genesis or we study Genesis, we just approach it as if it's just this blank history book. And it's just giving us historical knowledge. And we forget that a real person wrote this, Moses, and he wrote it for the sake of real people, the people he was living around. And so, as you can imagine, uh, when Israel comes out of slavery in Egypt, not only did they carry with them all of their possessions, they also carried with them a belief in many of Egypt's gods. Egypt was polytheistic, believed in many different types of gods. And the fact that Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry ground did not erase their memory or fondness for those make-believe gods. Even in the wilderness, as they see God work in incredible ways, they have to be reminded of who God is, what his compassion is like, what we are like as sinners and rebels against him. And so Moses sits down and he writes these words in order to anchor the people of God in a theology of God and an understanding of what redemption looks like. So this is not a book without historical context that just shows up on the, on the scene one day in the distant past. Uh, this is a book rooted in an experience of a people who are without a home, without a land, and they're afraid they're without a God, but they are never alone. He's with them always. Now, when it comes to studying books of the Bible or, or any passage of Scripture, uh, one thing I enjoy that helps me is seeing the structure of the book of the Bible. And so, how's it laid out? And if I can see that skeleton behind the meat, 
it helps me understand better, just build a, a mental roadmap of where we are or where we're going through the book. And Genesis is perhaps the most well-structured book of the Bible. It's very clearly laid out, carefully laid out, and there's any number of ways you can approach it. I want to show you three ways that I think are really helpful in building a mental roadmap of the book of Genesis. So how's it structured? First of all, there's a narrative design to Genesis. Uh, and this is the most common. This is even how we're approaching it again in this study. Uh, the narrative design splits it into two large narratives. Chapters 1 through 11 are what we would call primeval history. And then chapters 12 through 50 are what are known as patriarchal history or the church father's history. Now the primeval history, just in short, it tells the story of people who had land, but they're losing it. Even going to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve have this land, and then because of their sin, they lose it. And that story is repeated throughout these first 11 chapters. But then in chapters 12 through 50, the narrative shifts so that it's telling stories of ind individuals who do not have land, but they are on their way towards it. So one group is losing, and another group is expecting so the narrative design of Genesis is, is very common and makes a lot of sense. There's a second way you can structure it. It's what you might call the geographical design of Genesis or the locations where all these things happen. So chapters 1 through 11 are set in the region of Babylonia. Uh, chapters 12 through 36 are set in Palestine. Chapters 37 through 50 are set in Egypt. And these are the three major geographic areas around the Mediterranean Sea at the time that, that all of this unfolds. And so each part of the quote-unquote known world is represented in the book of Genesis. And the history of God's people is going to be forever lived between these two geographical masses of Babylon and Egypt. So what we experience geographically in the book of Genesis carries us all the way through to the end of the Bible. Uh, one last way that we can structure the book of Genesis, and I think this for me is perhaps most helpful, is what I'd call the redemptive design of Genesis. Three-part redemptive design. So in other words, it's telling the story of God's redemption of his people from their sin. Chapters 1 through 2 describe creation. Chapters 3 through 11 describe decreation. And it culminates in the flood. The flood is not just God wiping things out. It is God reversing the creation he started with. And we're going to get deep into that in the weeks to come. Creation, decreation, and then 12 through 50 is recreation. As God fulfills his promise to his people and begins to create for himself a people who will live in his promises until the day their redemption is complete. So those are some different ways of thinking about the overall structure of the book of Genesis. Chapters 1 through 11 also has a specific structure, and we're going to talk more about that in the weeks to come. But what we'll find in chapters 1 through 11 are five stories that carry the same type of action. There's this distinct repetition for the way the stories unfold. There's a, a, a moment of sin followed by divine speech, followed by God's grace, followed by the punishment of sin. That happens five times over in the book or in the chapters 1 through 11. And so what, we, what we're going to find through this series is that mankind only increases and intensifies in sinfulness until God stops it and reverses the course of history towards redemption. 
Mankind sins more and more and more. It does not stop. It does, if, if you've ever studied the book of Judges or you were with us a few years ago in that sermon series, it's kind of the same type of thought. Mankind intensifies sin without any seeming stop. But every time that happens, God responds with grace and grace and more grace. It's really remarkable. God's character is on full display in this story. So, there is your introduction to the book of Genesis. I hope that's helpful. And with all of that in mind, it's time for us to read. So, if you've got your Bible open, Genesis chapter 1. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. The Bible begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Do not let the brevity or the familiarity of these two verses fool you. These verses are an endless mine of awe and wonder. What should the response be when God's people open the Bible to these opening lines and read these first two verses? I think the response should be worship, and that's our target this morning. It gives us a picture of God in these first two verses, a picture of God that leads us to a place of praise and exaltation for the God that we are seeing more and more clearly. Anytime we see God, anytime we understand him better, deeper, we have an experience with him, the response from his people is praise and worship, and that's what we should do on reading these first two verses this morning. The main character in these opening words is not creation itself, but the creator. And so I want to show you a two-part portrait of God that Moses gives us here at the beginning of Genesis. What do we see of God? What do we learn of him in these two verses? The first thing we learn is this. God is the uncreated creator. What does this tell us about God? God's the uncreated creator. Look at verse 1, such a simple and well-known sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's such a simple sentence. In the original Hebrew, it's just seven words. And as Moses wrote under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, he describes to us a God who is so unlike us and in his historical setting was so unlike the gods of Egypt as well. Moses does not begin by giving us an origin story for God. All the gods of Egypt had an origin story, but Elohim... Israel's God, he does not have an origin story. There's no description of where he came from or how he came to be or when he came to be. And that's not because Moses just didn't know the story of God's origin. It's because there is no origin story for the God who has always been. Created things have origins. Creators do not. God has always been. He is uncreated. He is self-existent. He is eternal. He's utterly independent. In a single word, he is transcendent. God transcends his creation. He exists beyond his creation. The word transcend is vitally important to understanding what it is that God has revealed of himself to us. 
So what does it mean to say that God transcends his creation? Well, to say that God transcends creation is to say he exists outside of it. He is utterly and infinitely other than his creation. Uh, Here's a little illustration that I commonly use that I think helps illustrate what the transcendence of God is like. Imagine that this microphone is all of human history, all of it. And so it all starts here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and one day it all ends here. Now, where are we on the timeline of human history? It depends on a lot of things. I don't know for sure. feels like we're a little more towards this end of it, right? So let's just say we are here in human history. It started here, and we're here. And you know what? Maybe we're here instead. Or you might argue, no, I think we're here. And I wouldn't argue. I'd say, okay, I'll I'll give you that. That's where we could be. But here's the deal. Wherever we are on this timeline of human history, here's what you and I don't know. We don't know what comes after the point that we're in. We can look back and we can see and understand these things. But you and I, we live just right here in this moment, not knowing what's to come. And the way you and I so often relate to God is as if he also is stuck in space and time with us and has no real glimpse of what the future will be. How much of your praying to God reflects this way of understanding human history and the future and God's position with us? Now, we might say, you know what? God knows the future, and that's correct. God sees all of it. What we can't see, he sees with perfection. He knows. And so God's transcendence is reflected in this one way, that he knows the end of the story, how it's all going to play out. But that's not all that makes God transcendent. It's not just his knowledge of the parts that we don't know. It's also his position, his location, his relationship to space and time. You and I are stuck here in this timeline, but God exists outside of it. He sees all of it from start to finish with a single glance. Not only does he see it in this way, but he can see it in this way, and he can look at it from here, or he could look at it from this way, or he could look at it over here. He can do like this. He can do whatever he wants to do with it. God sees all of it. He transcends his creation. The seconds aren't ticking by on God's clock the way they are on ours. What happens tomorrow is not a mystery to him. He's been at tomorrow since he said, let there be light. He's there. He transcends it. We, we cannot comprehend the greatness, the bigness of God. So he transcends all of it. He lives outside of it. But to speak of God's transcendence is not just to describe his location in relationship to creation, but it's also to speak of his infinite value and worth. Here's how the angels sang of God's worth in Isaiah chapter 6. They sang in front of Isaiah and in front of God on his throne, not just that God was holy, But they needed a word more intense than holy. And so they start to sing he's a holy, holy. But they need something more intense than holy, holy. And so they describe God this way. He is holy, holy, holy. That three-part repetition is not just to fill syllables on a song sheet. It is to intensify uh, in human language 
the degree to which God is holy. And that intensity of holiness is something utterly transcendent from the rest of creation. He's not just transcendent in his position or location, but also in his infinite value and worth. God spoke of his own transcendence through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, when God said this, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Heaven's my throne. Earth, that's my footstool. That's not to speak little of earth, but it's to speak great of God, of his value and his worth above all things in in creation. Not only does verse 1 speak of God's transcendence, but it also teaches us that he's sovereign. Moses writes this, he says, in the beginning. Do you know what beginnings are paired with? Ends. If you've got a beginning of something, you've got to have an end of something. And and so if God is the author of the beginning of all things, isn't he also the author of the end of all things? God's not trapped in the tyranny of time like we are, not experiencing the days like we are one at a time, but he's crafted them all from beginning to end. And so the opening line of the Bible introduces us to the uncreated creator, transcendent and sovereign. It is such a tragedy when we lose sight of the bigness of God, the greatness of God, but it happens often. In our world and in our lives, we've tried to make God in our own image. And when we're doing that, we're losing his transcendence. We're lowering the uncreated one to a created one. And so he becomes a little more than just an idealized version of ourselves. The God that we create or that we imagine or come up with is always a superman, if you will. And then in our disappointment and hurt, when he fails, when the God we've invented doesn't meet our expectations, what we end up saying is, I don't believe in God. I wouldn't want to believe in that God either. The God that you've made up, the God that you've created, the God that I've made in my own image, that God is utterly unbelievable. But that's not the God of beginnings. That's not the God who transcends all of this. The God whose worth and glory we cannot invent or imagine. The gods we make up are not this God of creation. When we give ourselves to the tiny gods of our own making, the results are always disastrous. There's no, there's no answer for shame and guilt. There's no deliverance from evil. There's no hope in our grief. There's no secure future. It's such a bleak way to live. And our problem is that we don't like to imagine that God is beyond our control. Uh, One of my favorite authors of old, A.W. Tozer, wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. If you want to read a great book to go along with the book of Genesis, and if you've never read The Knowledge of the Holy, I'd encourage you to put it at the top of your list. It's a brilliant piece of work that leads to incredible worship and deep prayer. And listen to how Tozer describes our struggle and failure to think of God as he truly is. He said this. It's a little long quote, but here's what he said. He said, To admit that there's one who lies beyond us, who exists outside of all our categories, who will not be dismissed with the name, who will not appear before the bar of our reason, nor submit to our curious inquiries, this requires a great deal of humility. 
more than most of us possess. So we save face by thinking God down to our level, or at least down to where we can manage him. Yet, how he eludes us. It is not a cheerful thought that millions of us who live in a land of Bibles, who belong to churches and labor to promote the Christian religion, may yet pass our whole life on this earth without once having thought or tried to think seriously about the being of God. God is the uncreated creator. He is more majestic powerful, more glorious, more wonderful than we can invent or imagine. That's the God we meet in verse 1. But he isn't just big and powerful. Verse 2 gives us another part of the portrait of God, and it's this. God is the compassionate creator. He's the uncreated creator. speaks of his power, his might, but he's also the compassionate creator. This speaks to his love. So verse 2 describes the initial stages of creation really as something fearful and chaotic. We're told the earth was formless and empty. Your translation of the Bible might say formless and void. And, And so what does that mean? Well, to say the earth is formless is to say it's without definition. Just This isn't the right word to use. I'm not sure which word to use, but just think of a blob right? Formless. It has no shape, no definition, no structure. The earth is formless and it is empty or void. It does not possess life. It has no inhabitants at this point. The Hebrew word for formless and void is a great one to add to your vocabulary. Tohu, wabohu. The earth was formless, tohu, and void. Wabohu, What is it when one day, men, you wake up and you look in the mirror and you realize, I don't need my hairbrush anymore. My hair has become tohu, wabohu. It is formless and empty, right? (laughs) High school students, you've got a big paper due tomorrow morning, four pages that you've got to type out. And you sit down tonight and you've got two sentences. Your paper is tohu, wabohu. It is formless and void. This is what creation is. At its initial stages, formless and void. Moses also tells us the earth is covered in darkness. Now, throughout the Bible, darkness is consistently used as a description of something evil or something fearful. We're not saying that God created evil here in the opening days of creation, but darkness always has this foreboding sense to it in a poetic way. And so the earth is not inhabitable. It's not formed. Uh, it, it, there's this fearsomeness to it. Uh, the best way perhaps to describe it is chaos. Early creation is chaos. But there's one more detail here in verse 2 that reassures us that the chaos does not reign. The last line of verse 2 tells us the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Here we get a glimpse of our Trinitarian God in the opening lines of the Bible. Uh, Some Bible scholars will be very quick to say at this point, it's a stretch to say this is a glimpse of the Trinity. The word spirit in Hebrew can also be translated as breath or wind. It could just be describing the, the wind of God, this divine wind that's sort of organizing things together. 
But the person who reads the Bible as it is for what it is will say, no, our God has always been a trinity. And here it's not breath or wind that's doing the creative work. It is God himself. This is God the Spirit who is hovering over the surface of the waters. What's meant by hovering? Such a strange word. Well, this word is used in two other places in the Old Testament. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 32 as well as in Isaiah chapter 31. And in both places where that word is used, it's used to describe an eagle flying over her nest, protecting and caring for her young. God the Holy Spirit hovers over the chaos of creation like a a mother eagle caring for and protecting her young in her nest. Here's the difference between the Holy Spirit's hovering and the eagle's hovering. The eagle hovers over a nest that is formed and filled. The Holy Spirit hovers over a nest that is not yet formed and not yet filled. But in the hovering, God the Holy Spirit, present here over earth at creation's moment, is organizing the chaos bringing order to this formless and void planet. He's going to push back the darkness and bring in light so that creation can be filled by his people. So quiz time, why is God the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters? He's hovering in order to bring order to the chaos. Here's the big question. For whom is he hovering? You. He's going to bring order out of the chaos for you. He's going to prepare this place for you so that you could live and breathe and worship and be redeemed and know the God of creation and be saved from your sins and rescued from every heartache and every bit of brokenness. He does all of this for you. And when I think about God the Holy Spirit hovering over the chaos, bringing order to it, preparing it for us, I'm taken to the night before Jesus died. John 14 describes this scene. Jesus has washed his disciples' feet and he's repeated to them again that he's about to be betrayed and he's going to die, but he will rise from the dead and the disciples are terribly upset by this. And so do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, verses 1 through 3? He said this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. I think we most often have this idea that when Jesus says he's going to prepare a place for us, that he's talking about going to heaven far away, and he's going to finish up the landscaping on our mansions, and he's going to buff the streets of gold to a mirror finish, but that's not correct. When Jesus speaks these words... Where is he about to go? He's on his way to the cross. The cross is where he prepares the place for you. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, God the Spirit hovers over the chaos, showing his dominion over the the chaos and his intention to create a place for his people. And then at the cross, God the Son shows his dominion over evil and sin and at the cost of his own life makes a way for us to be 
his children forever. Creation begins with the compassion of God, and that same divine compassion is in action all the way from the chaos to the cross. He is a compassionate creator. So what have we learned about God today from these two verses? We've seen a portrait of God that reveals him to be the uncreated creator and the compassionate creator. In far simpler terms, he is powerful and he is loving. Now, if I told you to introduce God to another person using only two of his attributes, which two attributes would you choose? How would you introduce him? The Bible introduces God as powerful and loving. When you open the Bible for the very first time and read the very first words for the very first time, you meet a God who is powerful and loving. Why do you think that's important to know? Why is it that of all the ways God could be pictured for us, introduced to us, is he introduced to us as powerful and loving? Well, when you become aware of the horror of your sin against God and your helplessness to do anything about it, do you know what you need? You need a God who is powerful enough to defeat your sin and loving enough to save you from it. That's why Jesus died and rose again. And when you turn to him in faith, he promises to forgive you and give you eternal life. He's powerful enough to do it. He's loving enough to have done it. He will rescue you from your sin when you trust in him. And even with Jesus as your Savior, life is full of hardship. So when your life is interrupted by grief, you need a God who is powerful enough to give you hope beyond the grief and loving enough to walk with you through it. And when your life is battered by trials of many kinds, you need a God who is powerful enough to calm the storm and loving enough to deliver you from it. And then when your life comes to a close, and you close your eyes for the last time here and you open them for the first time there, you need a God who is powerful enough to keep his promise of life to you and loving enough to welcome you into his eternal glory. Power in the love of God has inspired the church always to praise Him. And an early song that does this so well is found in Psalm 147, verses 3 and 4. And the song goes this way He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds, He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. In verse 3 is his love that heals the brokenhearted. In verse 4 is the power by which he knows every star by name. The God who knows the name of every star is the God who binds up your wounds. And that's a God worthy of praise. This week, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your Bible outside. Could be day, could be night. If it's night, you'll want a flashlight. But either way, I want you to take your Bible outside of your house, and I want you to see, look at trees, or sky, or grass, or water, and I want you to read these two verses, and then praise God. You might praise Him in prayer, you might praise Him in writing, you might praise Him in singing, but Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, give us a song to sing to our powerful and loving God, the one who's our creator. Let's pray together.
to you, the creator of all things, mighty and compassionate, transcendent and imminent, sovereign yet with us. To you we give glory and praise and honor and majesty and hallelujahs forever and ever. Humble us as we encounter you in your word and we see you with greater clarity than we did before. And to think that you, the God who speaks everything into creation, is the same God who prepares this place for us, it's a humbling thought and a glorious thought. Father, thank you. Thank you for being our God and for the grace that you've shown us and the compassion that you give us daily. I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would carry with them a song of praise rooted in your power and your love, seen supremely through the gift of your son and his death on the cross. And God, I pray for any friends in here that don't know you as their savior, that this day they would know that there is a creator, that he knows them by name, just as he knows the names of all the stars, he knows the names of all of his people. And Lord, I pray that you would turn them your way in faith, creating them a new heart this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray.